I did meet a lot of Holocaust survivors growing up. This is pretty, pretty typical, which is pretty insane. Like, it was one thing reading it when I think I was like immersed in all of that. But reading it now, like really detached, kind of, I was just like, wow, this is crazy that this actually happened. And it didn't like seem so crazy when I was younger. But now I'm just like, it's really nuts. What can we say about Art Spiegelman's mouse that hasn't been said before? I don't know. Uh, we've now arrived at the letter M, which certainly isn't for anti-Semitism. Uh, I see what you did there. So M is actually for Mouse, one of comics' all-time greats. We feel it's a long overdue discussion on this show, especially given the rise in book bans to which this book is no stranger, most recently being banned in a Tennessee school district, and the ongoing resurgence of anti-Semitism. Spiegelman might be known for Mouse, the Pulitzer Prize-winning graphic novel uh, written in the 70s and 80s that recounts his father's harrowing tale of survival during the Holocaust. But Spiegelman was actually a prolific indie cartoonist before then. He started as an artist at the trading card company Tops, where he co-created one of my favorite trading card series of all time, the Garbage Pail Kids. Do you remember those, Roman? I think I've just discovered another thing that we have in common is our love of the Garbage Pail Kids. But two two things that actually got him banned. Garbage Pail Kids got banned before Mouse. Really? Yeah. Wow, it, so he's used to this. Wait, Emily, were you were you a big fan of Garbage Pail? Emily's our guest. We didn't get there yet, but <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> were you a big fan of Garbage Pail Kids? I Yeah. Absolutely. I did not know Spiegelman created them either. That was one of the benefits of doing this podcast. You do all this research. Anyway, back from the rabbit hole. Um, in the late 70s, Spiegelman published a series, a series, a series of experimental comics in a, in a collection called Breakdowns, which didn't do great at the time, but was reissued last year by Pantheon. In 1980, Spiegelman co-founded and co-edited the alt comics journal Raw with his wife, Francois Mouly, which published then-unknown creators like Charles Burns and Chris Ware. It was actually in Raw where Mouse first appeared, one chapter at a time. Spiegelman, however, struggled to find someone to publish Mouse in book form, but to his relief, Pantheon stepped up to publish the first six chapters in 1986, which depicts Spiegelman's father and mother trying to outrun the Nazis in Europe. Why was that a relief? Well, because Spiegelman had heard about Steven Spielberg producing an animated film about mice refugees, an American tale, and he freaked out a little and wanted the book to come out first. Spiegelman's father would appreciate that hustle. Anyway, the second volume of Mouse came out in 1991, the same year he won the Pulitzer, which is what catapulted Spiegelman and Mouse to household name status. And that's what we're reading today. And we've got a special guest. You heard her earlier, but now you'll learn all about her as well. Emily Mintz. Emily is an oil painter who works at the Bronx Zoo. If you're there and you check out the Poison Dart Frog exhibit, she built that with her own two hands. And she also appears in the occasional episode of the reality TV show, The Zoo on Animal Planet. Emily, what did I miss? Anything else? That's about it. <laughs> so one reason I really wanted to have you on this podcast is because Mouse is very important. It's a very important book to you. But I guess as someone of Jewish heritage, when and how did you first discover Mouse? And what did it mean to you? first discovered mouse probably in elementary school but i didn't read it until middle school the the holocaust is always like really present in my life did your parents discover it when it got all the press or did you find it was it in the library yeah how'd you find out about it i i think my parents had it my dad was a writer 
Mm-hmm. So he was really on top of that. But also I went to a private Jewish school and they were very into Holocaust education. So it was kind of just completely like around. Yeah. I feel like in uh non-Jewish community, like the most I grew up other than, I mean, it was like Diary of Anne Frank and that was kind of it. Like I didn't read Night until like college, you know? Schindler's List, you know, I saw the Seinfeld episode about it before I saw the movie, etc. Um, what about you, Ryan? Like, how did so? And Mouse, honestly, I... it was, came about like when I was like, "Oh, comics that aren't about superheroes. This is one of the best ones." I guess I'll read it. Oh, wait, it's about that. Like, I, I, no, I, I first saw it in uh, my eighth grade classroom, Mrs. Vaughn's class. I was like, "Oh shit, there's a comic here," with you know, buried under all the boring stuff. And uh, I, I picked it out and I, I flipped through it, and it was black and white and they put it back anything that was kind of black and white indie looking i just wasn't into at the time so i put it back and since you know and then obviously i actually didn't read it until recently until like this for this podcast really yeah it became it was one of those books that just kind of had this stature right and you kind of so many people talk about it, it you kind of form your your thoughts on what it is is about and what it is in your own head you kind of fill that in and that almost kind of replaces you reading the book so sometimes like the fact that a book like this is so seminal it can almost kind of work against it i feel like reading holocaust literature watching holocaust films watching holocaust documentaries i say this as a non-jew um it's scary and any person trying to deal with someone else's like cultural trauma it's a hard thing to jump into and i i think it's I mean, other than the fact that there's a giant swastika on the cover, and maybe that's this edition that I'm reading, um, it just kind of draws you in until it's too late, and then by that point, it, you're 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 in the story. You can't look away. You have to keep reading. Um, when, when did you read it for the first time? Uh, college or grad school? You know, it was when I was starting to like. I'd already come back into superhero comics, but I was following writers, and really starting to understand the medium. Met, what's about good writing, you know, good storytelling, not just superheroes. And so you just, you know, find the list of, you know, what are the greatest books you should be reading? And, you know, at the top of all those lists are, you know, The Dark Knight Returns and uh, Bone and Watchmen and Mouse. You know, like there's probably four of like the top 10 greatest comics of all time lists. Um, So, you know, I just was a completionist and I had to read it. And at that time, other than like my one Jewish friend from Alabama and the Indiana Jones movies, it depends. If it was an undergrad, I'd not been to a concentration camp. But uh, when I lived in Austria, I did go to a concentration camp um, on the Slovenian border. But like, you didn't have a real understanding of it, you know. And like, Emily, I, it's something you know we found out earlier uh, over emails is that you have Holocaust survivors in your family, and I want to jump into that a little bit because the fact that this is such a singular narrative about one person's experience, I think, makes it not be a statistic. I guess like. And you said something in your email about how, like, the story was kind of like the story that you heard. Uh, can can you talk a little bit about, like, how, how not just how resonant this is, but, like, how real is this based on kind of the things you grew up hearing about? Well, um, actually, in my family, we don't have survivors. We have family that left in 1929 or around there, and then everyone else who stayed and was killed. So I don't know their stories. So, like, it could be very similar to this. They could be one of the background characters. But um, I did um, meet a lot of Holocaust survivors growing up. And this is pretty 
pretty typical, which is pretty insane. Like, it was one thing reading it when I think I was like immersed in all of that. But reading it now, like really detached, kind of, I was just like, wow, this is crazy that this actually happened. And it didn't like seem so crazy when I was younger. But now I'm just like, it's really nuts. I think when I was a kid, I recognized that it was crazy. And some people had like different experiences. We both, we were all taught the same things and told the same stories. And some of them like weren't traumatized by it. I was definitely traumatized by it. But um, I did like the way he was talking about, I think it was like dreams he has or stuff or like how he would imagine like going into the shower and the gas coming out and stuff. And it's just like so relatable. And like my grandma would always like tell me stories about her cousins and end them with, and then they were killed by Hitler. And I was talking to my dad about it actually, because I was reading this and I was reading um, my great aunt's memoir after because I just wanted to see what she had to say about her family there. And it was just like, and then they were killed by Hitler. And it's just like how the stories end. <laughs> In the story of like Spiegelman's dad, you're kind of hearing one man's survival story, but throughout the whole story, he's talking about friends or the guy he was hanging out with or working in the tin shop with that didn't survive. So for every one survivor story, there's, you know, an order orders of magnitude, more people who didn't make it. You you see how many opportunities like where you had to die, where he almost died. Right. I mean, in the, and he's trying, he's trying to escape the Nazis in the first book and the second book is Auschwitz. And it's like close call after close call after close call, um, even then when he does get captured, it's like it's still like just a succession of ordeals that he has to go through. Um, and so like the fact that he does survive is is pretty much a miracle. It's both hustle. It's both luck. It's 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 also luck as well. Um, that level of detail, usually I, I mean, I I kind of think of like Holocaust narratives that I've you you know, that, I, you know, that I've read or seen and and um in my memory, you know, they don't kind of dive into this level of specificity that that Spiegelman does with with Mouse. I might be wrong there, though. Yeah, um, I think you'll find that. And a lot of the details are often really similar. I was like remembering while I was reading it. But um, back to about like the story and, and how it's just like his story and he could have died at any point. I really like how the story is told and then he dies at the end and the story's over. And it really, I think, gets to the point of like, this is one person's story and it's only a story. I mean, obviously it carries on after he dies, but it's like a living thing until the person's dead. And then it's like, there is the, the loss of everybody's stories. There's a loss of the diaries and when he burns them and, and how he says, how he calls him a murderer for that. Cause it's like, once the person's gone and the story's gone, there's nothing left. And I think the big tragedy of the Holocaust is that so many people's stories were just ended. He dedicates one of the books to his brother, Richel. I don't know how to pronounce it, but, you know, he never met him. He was always kind of haunted by the two by two inch photograph that, you know, that was around the house. But in a way, it's also kind of like him sort of honoring his brother who who died and trying to make sure that he is he is remembered, even though he doesn't know him well enough to make him like a big character in the book. There's this acknowledgement that he existed. Well, but even like the stories of his mom, you know, Anya is a supporting character because he's rooting this all in the stories that his father says. And as you were just saying, Emily, 
you know, one of the kind of like subplots in the kind of current day narrative of the book of him talking to his grandfather is, oh, you've got all of, you know, mom's diaries where let's find mom's diaries. And he later finds out she threw them out. And as a result, you there's a whole perspective that's missing from this book. And and Spiegelman feels that loss. He makes us feel the loss, too. And, uh, you know, to, to Emily's point, you know, it's it's once that those those stories are gone, the person is is kind of vanished from history as well. Yeah. Like, I, I think it is really a metaphor for everyone who was lost and everyone who was burned and all that. And it's, um, we used to always be told a lot that it's not just the people who died, but like the potential of the people who died and like the potential of their kids and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think that really like shows in this too, because it's like her stuff's gone, but our Spiegelman's here. And he's an incredible artist and he's making an impact on the world. And what would it be like if one of them hadn't survived? We'd be missing that too. The moment where the box comes out and it's obviously not mom's diaries, but it's all the photos. And I, even the way he like depicts them is it's just like he's Spiegelman's like purposefully like overwhelming you with all these photos. Like the, the photos are on top of the pictures and it's just kind of like, I don't want to call it rambling, but it's like, and this was this person, this was this person, this was this person, this was this person. And he literally does that for like three or four pages while the photos just like literally stack on top of the panels. And it's that exact kind of emotion I was feeling that you kind of put words to Emily. It's like, these are all the people that aren't here today. These are all the people that didn't make it. This is the life that wasn't lived. Um, I feel like I, I, yeah, even throughout tough. like that first volume, you know, when he's kind of talking about the different you know, the different people that, uh, that that his father encounters, you know, he kind of gives a description of the people. He kind of sketches them out, sketches out their, their who they are, where they came from. What are their personalities like? Is he a good man? Was he kind of in it only for himself? And then, you know, of course, it's kind of, kind of like hit, uh, kind of like um, Emily's, uh, was it your great, was it your great aunt, her memoir? Um, and then Hitler killed them all. Like it always just ends with like, and then he disappeared yeah. and never saw him again. Um, and it just feels like, yeah, how quickly they're kind of they're kind of obliterated. And some of those are really hard to take. I remember his father-in-law, who had been so nice to to him, you know, kind of trying to set him up for success, trying to set up his his uh, his grandchildren up for success. And then at the moment he's taken away, he's screaming and crying, and he's just kind of losing it. He's a successful, rich businessman, and in the whole process of him kind of being in line for to be executed. I mean, it just strips him of his humanity, of his dignity. Um, and all he really wants to do is to, is to live. And that was really hard. That was, that was kind of, for me, one of the toughest deaths because he had been such a, a big presence in Spiegelman's father's life. I kind of really kind of set him up to, to, to be in business. Um, and then he's suddenly just, just gone. Yeah. I always had a really hard time with the, um, the older generation and the way that they were killed and just, you know, like, oh, you're too old to exist anymore. And, you know, especially like, I guess, as we get older and like our parents are aging and stuff, I think about that sometimes, how they'd be the age where they would just be dismissed. And it's really tragic. The, the realities of aging parents and the care of aging parents and even his wife, uh, Francois, she's trying to be like more civil to him than art's willing to be um that that i hate to say it, that hit really close to home you know just kind of watching behaviors and interactions with parents as as they age that is actually is something that 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 um yeah really felt that that made this book feel a lot feel 
so much more real is is that very palpable tension between father and son and how you know he's he just does not want to live with his father and he's he's trying to get the story he's but there's also this sort of anger with what he did with diaries there's this discomfort around how the father treats his stepmother that's also that was interesting also like you know the, the Oh, Mala, Mala, yeah, Mala. because you know he keeps saying, "Oh, she's a gold digger. She's just she's just in it for the money," and you can kind of tell that Art. I don't think Art Spiegelman really feels that that is that is true uh, because he's a lot. You know, he's you know he's he's trying to be supportive of her as well, and then you kind of get her side of the story, which is he's just a really difficult, cheap guy to live with. He's really <laughs> really cheap. I mean, not you know as as in, to the point where Spiegelman was nervous about turning him into a caricature of a. Of a miserly Jew. Yeah, I definitely think that he does, yeah. but I also bet that it's almost entirely accurate. <laughs> so, because it's tough, it's like you don't want further stereotypes, but if it's true. Emily, I want to ask another question about like Holocaust and pop culture, right? So, um, when Ryan and I were talking about were talking about Mouse, I threw out a couple of other movies at him, right? And the two that like. I, I don't know if, well, obviously I saw one before and one after reading Mouse, but Life is Beautiful by Roberto Benini and um, Jojo Rabbit. Or, or, first of all, first question, we can edit this part no. out, but have you seen either okay. of those movies? I kind of like was like no Holocaust right, we'll stuff. This Actually, this is out. like the first thing I've looked at about the Holocaust in a very long time. So Wait, why were you like, why were you like no Holocaust stuff? I don't know. It kind of, it was just very, very present in my life for a very long time. And I've kind of moved away from my Jewish communities a, a bit. And um, it always just kind of reminded me of the stereotype and everything. And I just didn't, I didn't want to think about it. Were you, were you, but you you were excited to read Mouse again or to, to reread Mouse? I'm not sure Mouse. if I was excited at first. At first I was like, no. <laughs> She's yeah, more excited about being on a podcast Absolutely. with you, Ryan, I felt because so all of your out. other friends have already been on this podcast. Yeah, no, at first I was like, yeah. I definitely do not want to read Mouse again. And then I was like, you know what? Well, I also had this experience recently with some friends who were, I guess, raising their kids not as woke as I would have expected. And it made me realize, like, you can't just ignore these things and you can't just forget it because it's uncomfortable and that kind of made me be like yeah i'll do this yeah it's not an easy thing to read but it i don't want to call it required reading but it's i hate to say it, but it's a goddamn comic book it's like i it's definitely not the easiest holocaust read but it's not the hardest one like night by ellie weasel like that book like broke me <laughs> right um and i'm not saying this book wasn't hard and this book didn't like move me but it's like Come on, read I don't know. This book. one, this one was pretty tough. Also, I mean, definitely volume two, the Auschwitz stuff. It's just freaking nasty. What happened in there, and then the way like Spiegelman kind of depicts some of these mice as they're burning in the pits because they're still alive. Yeah. I mean, it was just like a nightmare. And I still, you know, I mean, it's something that I'm was kind of like actively just thinking about those panels um, and the description of what happened there, and also like, you know, the father. Well, and we we talk. I want I want to I want to center on that for a second, and this is again why comics are really important. Like in a movie, you can kind of look away, you know, and you know fast forward through it. But with like a book, yeah, I guess you can turn the page, but it's there. The page is still two pages behind the one you flip past, and it, it I think 
pages and static imagery really burns in your face, in your in your mind a lot when you read it. And I think it's kind of it leaves an indelible mark on you, doesn't it, Brian? Like you said, you were still thinking. Yeah, about well, it. because it's a still image, right? So like with a movie, right? The, it, yeah. it moves on, and then there's also stuff that, that can sometimes distract you. The 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 lighting or the John the Williams score, score or though, whatever, right. and you don't yeah. have that. Sometimes it's a luxury. Sometimes it's not. You don't have that in a in a comic. It's a it's a still image. It's a. I mean, Emily, you're a painter. You you. I'm sure you kind of feel this way. You know, it's a that's a still image that can really, um, just grab you and not let go. Yeah, and that was one thing about Mouse that was like really kind of important to me. I was already, I guess, drawing some dark stuff and really like bold images. <laughs> For the zoo, yeah, I mean, for like the kids, in, right? in middle yeah. school and stuff, and then like seeing this totally yeah. like not beautiful art form that was still so important, and you know, it really kind of was the first time, I guess. Well, maybe not the first time, but it was like art doesn't have to be pretty. It just, but it does have to say something. The last time you read it, you were a kid, right? And then you you didn't come back to it until we asked you to be on this podcast is that is that right so what was your impression of it the second time it was very much how i remembered it but i also i actually i just thought i was just surprised at how little build up there was to the horror and how i can see why it would be hard for people who don't have a history learning about you know 1930s Europe would be like this is crazy like this can't happen it was so like everything was just so back to back right because like when they're fleeing for instance in Poland it... well but, but book one book one is all about surviving but it's all about I mean, surviving. all of it's about surviving but 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 book one ends and that that was the jarring thing for me because second time around I finally read book two right because I only own book one um it's kind of like, and then he escapes, and then he escapes, and then he escapes, and then he escapes. Like, he's outsmarting them at every turn in the first book. And then in book two, it's like, he's caught, and now it's fucking, I mean, literally, chapter one, Mauschwitz is what it says, right? It's like, okay, now shit was real, but now shit's really real. Like, you're in the camp. And the sur survival means a completely different yeah, that's thing true. Well, because then kind of the cat and mouse. It's a game, It's so like in, in Auschwitz. It's it's definitely it's like every day is like a life and death. There's a new life and death situation. In book one, he's just you know. Well, it's a death. It's a death and death. It's death and death and death and death. Right. The other one's kind of evading capture. Well, yeah, so he's evading capture. Well, I mean, it's not death and death. He does he does live. But even in the first book, I mean, it's like people decide a bunch of them are going to go this way and trust these Germans. And then you hear them getting killed. Mm. Yeah. That was what was so stressful about like that. Like, I mean, imagine living it right. Like, cause he's as like, there's no move that that's definitely the right move. Right. And then if you're wrong, you're really fucking wrong. You're dead wrong. Right. And the, the fact that you have to make those decisions almost every day. And sometimes you have to make those decisions when you least expect to have to make those decisions it's just it's just this incredible it's just incredible tension that I think you know I mean Spiegelman translates it into dramatic tension but to actually have to be there and to 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 live it and to never feel safe ever it's got to be like a whole new level of complete everything fucking sucks and by the way in, in the backdrop of all of this everything that you own everything that you thought you had is gone and that is that is your life yeah 
I, I want to ask a more current question. I don't know if you guys know the answer. So obviously this book is being apparently banned in Tennessee. Why? Like, it, it, it's like, I, I, I don't agree with other book bannings for books like Genderqueer or Flamer and stuff like that. But I can understand why someone finds those books offensive. I not understand is the wrong word. I can see that. I don't understand other than it being like maybe a rated R historical depiction. Like I genuinely don't. I mean, why, why is this book banned? That's what I, I genuinely don't well, understand. There like, are a lot of people in this country who like to think that it didn't happen and that it was a gross exaggeration. And so I think there's that. Yeah, but that's like a little, that's like tinfoil shit, isn't it? I like, I is mean, it it's, it, it, yeah. we're seeing a lot of tinfoil shit. That's like the moon landing didn't happen, people. That, that That's how, I mean, I hate to say, maybe that's my own perception of folks who deny the Holocaust. We're, we're, I mean, we're starting, we're in this era where tinfoil shit, where shit that was tinfoil <clears throat> is starting to become. Yeah, Pizzagate. It's very right, real to right. some people. And because of the internet, that sort of tinfoil shit proliferates. And the more people who believe it, the more real it becomes. So is that what it is? It's like, oh, that's one opinion. That's a false exaggeration. That's the reason. I think that's, I think that's one reason. I also think they think it's really like gory and right. grotesque. Kids can't take it. Yeah, bullshit. Yeah. Right. Also, there's a swastika on the front. And most people who advocate for banning books never actually looked in the book they're advocating yeah. to ban. So. Yes. There are some books. So I have a seven-year-old in my house, right? And a two-year-old. And my seven-year-old does read comics and, oh, it's got mice in it, right? Um, the alternate intro of this podcast. But like, yeah, I actually, I hate to say it, I kept this book face down on my my night table. Again, my daughter, I don't think, knows what a swastika is and we need to have that conversation. I Like when I saw Indiana Jones as a kid, and never mind my uh, feelings against the second Indiana Jones with Indian people, but like the Nazis, I didn't really know what Nazis were. They were just bad guys, you know, good guys, bad guys, soldiers. I, it took a while for me to understand what Nazis were. Like, did you know what this meant, like, as a kid? Yes. Actually, the first time I saw the book, so I have an older brother, mm -hmm. so, like, he would often read things before me, and so mm -hmm. they'd be around, and I remember the first time I saw Mouse, I did not understand why there was a book with a swastika in the house. I was very upset So you already it. knew what a swastika was, the sign of evil. Yes, I, I knew about all this stuff from a very young age. Did they, did they explain yeah. it to you? Did yeah. you freak out? Like, what did you do? Yeah. Oh, oh, I was just like, what the? I think I may explain this thing. So, I mean, my parents always explained it all to me if I had yeah. a question. So, yeah. I actually, this might be really dark and you might want to cut this. But um, when I was like three and my brother was like six, or seven and four he got a set of encyclopedias about world war ii and the one book was dedicated to the holocaust and i remember he got it for like hanukkah or something and i like took it off the shelf and, I, and it was just pictures of like nazis killing people bodies stacked when i was like three or four and i remember specifically looking at one picture of a Nazi like in a field pointing a gun at someone who's like cradling their baby and trying to have my dad explain to me why mm -hmm. and it was just like well I'm ruined forever <laughs> what did you wait what did your dad say yeah. when, when just in case uh Roma's daughter picks up I don't picks up mouse and he has to explain the same thing <laughs> right. what's what's the what's the script whatever it was it wasn't enough to not traumatize me so you don't need to know <laughs> 
I, I have had some of those conversations with my daughter about bad people in the world and what happens, what, how do people become bad? That's kind of the lesson. I'm... But then it's also, and I really like that he brings this up multiple times, more in Mouse 2 than Mouse 1, but the whole, like, the, we're supposed to look at the mice as victims and the Jews mm. as the victims. And, I mean, definitely, <laughs> we were. But um, there's this intolerance and racism that's present in his dad also and it's like mm-hmm. yeah how do you equate like you you teach you teach your children and your grandchildren that like this is what hate does and then you still are hateful towards other people and that was always something that really boggled my mind in the jewish community not that there was a lot of yeah, racism yeah. but like, well, no it but it, it's not the jew it exists there. it exists in us all like i you know um I'm an atheist, but I remember when I read Paradise Lost in high school by John Milton. It's about um, Adam and Eve and, and the fall from grace, so to speak. And the fundamental thesis that I just to this day agree with, and we can all disagree with me if you want, but like man is of sin. And the thing that, and again, I'm an atheist saying this, but man is of sin. We will do the wrong thing left to our own devices. And civilization is a rebellion against our fucking base nature. We all have racism inside of us. We all have hate inside of us. Whether it's, I mean, and there was, it's not just the Nazis. Like at the end when they escape and they make it to the farm, it's just like the people in the farm fucking hated the Jews. Like it's, it ex- and and his dad, his grandpa about the black guy in the car and mm-hmm. shit my dad has said and probably shit I've said incorrectly. And, you know, I just, it's all a slippery slope to becoming well, an asshole. It I mean, for really the, the, the father also kind of mentions where this came from, right? He said, when I was a jeweler in New York, they would all, the black people would always steal from me. And he, you know, he didn't grow up surrounded by black people. So that is his, that just sort of became his impression of them. It sort of, it sort of imprinted into him. And yeah, but then Francois, I think, is the one who like tries to call him out. But like, that's what people were saying about right. Jewish no, no, people. Exactly. Like, that's what Polish Exactly. Was right. But yeah, it yeah. kind of like shows how, how, how dangerous like it is you know when he kind of like falls back on that first impression when that is the defining moment for for how he treats other people or how he thinks about other people it's really scary in the current kind of like media environment we're in like you can tell a story and reach a lot of people there's a currently a movie that's out right now um what the fuck is it called barbie the sound of freedom is this film that's out and it's again it's very anti-child trafficking but it's got a very from what i understand like if you remember the show 24, kind of like there's one way to deal with it. And this is the way, right? And it's dangerous. Again, I, I I haven't seen the movie. I don't know nearly enough about it. And I'm coming at it from a very like kind of left progressive lens. But just like, I get worried. Like, you know, like, as I, yeah. I don't know, like as a colored person in this country, as a brown person with a beard in an airport, you know, who lived through po- the post 9-11 era, right? It's just like nowhere near as bad as other things that have happened in history. But it's just like it is a slippery and easy fucking slope to get to badness. Yeah, I mean, that's what that's why we're seeing the Nazis start, start to really kind of have this resurgence and start to find ways to legitimize themselves. Also, because the proliferation of all of this of, you know, um, of the ease with which they can communicate with each other, um, you can kind of try out different narratives, right? Oh, that one didn't work. Let's try this one. That one didn't work. Let's try this one, right? You get better at it and you just keep shooting that narrative out there. 
Or, you know, Hitler knew this. You could say the same thing over and over loudly enough, people will start to believe. And now you have a super effective microphone that exists today. No, scapegoating and populism. I mean, that's literally how Hitler rose to... But it's not just not just the power. message. It's the way you deliver the message, right? You know, and... The, the 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 means to deliver that message is Absolutely. so much uh so much more efficient and effective today and not only that hey roman you know this you can measure it you can measure how effective it is now, at least i'm not writing articles about it for clickbait and subscriptions so i was that, i didn't mean that as an attack were you just attacking me <laughs> i think it kind of applies like i had a a teacher an eighth grade teacher who was a daughter of holocaust survivors and this was 1998 I guess and she was on the internet tracking like um, extremist groups and it was such like a new idea that these people were finding each other on the internet and she was like part of a group of people who was like really tracking it because like she knew what happens and it was like really scary and that always stuck with me because it's like it's just so much worse now like i'm glad she's not alive anymore to see what has happened to this country and the way that extremism has just been able to just flow through the airwaves you know it's like i mean i think that's why like stuff like mouse is so important because it's an antithesis to all of that sort of stuff yeah i, I think you need you kind of need more stories and more accounting of this sort of thing right that that's sober and realistic and unflinching right like i mean his dad's no saint, you know, he's he's a survivor and he's just a person. And I think that makes it more believable, more true. Right. So especially I, I do think, you know, Ryan, something we found, again, be it like the deeply personal, like interior stories like like Carrie and um and Limbo or the more macro stories like what we read about the Khmer Rouge. It's like when it's a singular story of one person, um, I think it tends to resonate a lot harder. That's that's one thing I'm kind of starting to learn because it's not a macro statistic. Yeah. Uh, uh, the history lesson. It's so easy to, to kind of, if you say like a whole bunch of people died, it's easy to kind of just overlook that. If you kind of just zero in on one person or a, or a family, you know, you see who they are as people and it's not an event. It's a it's it's something terrible that these people went through. And that's always going to run. That's, that's always going to resonate more than if it's just, you know, if it's just a thing that happened and you can kind of, turn it into an abstraction and even, you know, say that it it's not true. And that's definitely where we are, like with the Holocaust. I know growing up, they were always, we were always told to like really value hearing the stories of survivors firsthand because it was like the last generation. Mm -hmm. And like we see in the book, it's like once the story stops being told, kind of like another kind of death. And I think you know, especially since the internet is the way it is now and there aren't firsthand accounts accessible really anymore. It's even more important for people to read books like now. Emily, uh, kind of like uh, a flip on a question, Ryan and I, our next to last question we usually ask each other, but for a book like Mouse, I mean, my guess is you would recommend it to people to read, but who would you recommend? Everybody, because, you know, for someone like me, it was kind of cathartic and it made me think about my family and, and everything. It made me realize, like, double down on, like, I really need to be more active in stopping hate and not letting it flow right. But I also think for people who really just 
have no clue because there are tons yeah. of people who have no clue. How about you, Roman? All my Jewish friends have read Mouse, right? Uh, but I didn't discover it till later. I think non, I mean, look, yeah, everyone, but I, I think non-Jewish people need to read this book. Ryan, who should be reading this book? I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of with Emily. It's it's pretty universal. And I actually do think, you know, school kids should be reading it because I think it's in, it's, it's probably the best way to understand the horrors of the Holocaust, to actually kind of see it. I, I remember panels in comics better than I remember sequences in movies for some reason. And maybe that's just me, mm-hmm. but I feel like something like this is something that's going to stick with you. And I think it is important for something mm-hmm. like this to stick with you. You know, it's a harrowing story. At times it's like a kind of a thrilling story of escape, but it's also something that really happened. And it's something that I think the memory, it, it'll imprint on you. And yeah, this mm-hmm. is the sort of story that, that, that needs to be sort of imprinted. So, you know, on that happy note, Roman, what, what are we reading next week? Uh, so we're going to continue our march through the alphabet. Uh, and N is for Not All Robots by satirical comic book creator Mark Russell, uh, who we last checked in on when we read, can't believe I'm saying this on a podcast on Mouse. Um, we read his like satirical uh, prehistorical take with the Flintstones. Not All Robots is a near future fiction set in the year 2056 where robots have replaced human beings in the workforce. And there's like an uneasy coexistence between the newly intelligent robots and the 10 billion humans living on earth. I've read this book and while it is snarky and cynical and fucking hilarious, it is a dark take on a future that is probably closer than we think is going to be. So humans and robots, the near future, what could possibly go wrong? All right. Not all robots. Unhealthy coexistence, but for laughs this time. Emily, thank you for joining us. It's nice to like complete the Ryan Cinematic Universe. It's my pleasure. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Be sure to share with a friend, subscribe, and leave us a review wherever you get your favorite podcasts. See lots of pretty pictures of the books we read at qtdcomics.com. And since we're sure no one's listening, prove us otherwise. Shoot an email over to say what I got right and what Ryan got wrong. qtdcomics at gmail.com. Give you a social media handle, but we're old, and that feels like too much work. I'm Roman Segel. And I am and have always been Ryan Jones.